Equality of educational opportunity has long been a stated goal of education in this province. The polka dot door, the polka dot door, let's peep through the polka dot door. Good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome once again to Saturday Night at the Movies. My name is Elwi Yost. Today's special, shout it loud and clear, today's special. There is no way we could do a podcast about the history of TVO without mentioning documentaries. Documentaries are a unique window into the lives of others. They make you think and introduce you to different perspectives. And in the case of one of the documentaries TVO has screened, they actually change lives off screen too. So on this episode of TVO at 50, we're taking a look at TVO's long doc history with Jane Jankovic, executive producer of documentaries. How long have you been there? 25 years now? I've been 25 years at TVO, yeah. You know what? It's got to be more than that. I don't think so. I came in, uh, oh, maybe I'm into my 26, because I came in the summer of 1994 to do uh, Studio 2, work with you on Studio 2. Okay, so that'll be 26 years then. Then it's 26 years. Okay, yes, okay, it's 26 years. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like a long time, doesn't it? It does feel like a long time. Yeah. It's like a, it's a time to be in one place. But you know, the nature of our work is that every day is different. You know, every day has something new and creative or some problem to solve. So you know, we're not going in and, and doing um, repetitive work. It's uh, every day you've got to show up ready to do 100%. So maybe that's why time just flies when you're doing that. That voice belongs to Jane Jankovic, who is the commissioning editor of Documentaries at TVO. Documentaries, of course, being one of the things TVO is perhaps best known for during its 50 years on the air. Hello, JJ. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm just all the better for hearing your voice. How does that sound? Oh, it's sweet. Yeah. Well, talk to you. T- tell me this, uh, you know, just in terms of titles, what does a, a commissioning editor of Documentaries actually do? What I do is I receive pitches from uh, people in the film community who have ideas about films that they think would be a good fit for TVO. If I like the idea and I think it is a good fit for us, then what we can do is provide them a license. Um, and from that license, uh, it allows them to um, raise money to put together a budget so that the film can be produced. And then I work with that team through rough cuts and fine cuts, etc., to uh, get to the final version of the film. And sometimes it's the film we commission, and sometimes it's a totally different beast by the end, but hmm. it's a good story. And do you put money into the documentaries as well? Yes, yes, with the licensing, that's where we put our money. Um, and then we also have access to um, the Canadian Media Fund, where I can sort of supplement the license or top it up in a way with uh, money that comes from uh, Telefilm. And um, and we're able to give them a nice chunk of money. And the, the, the good thing about them coming to a place like TVO or, or any broadcaster, really, but um, it allows the license, the TVO license triggers a lot of money that they would not have access to if they did not have a broadcaster on board. So I think between our reputation and the fact that we are um, a broadcaster, it um, helps them a lot in terms of various grants that they apply for and other funds that they're, um, that they're, uh, uh, that are available to them. Right. And also international partnerships so that more money can get into the projects. Our projects can be very, very humble, but they can also be, you know, multi-million dollar projects. And it's not because we're putting that much money in, the TBO is putting all that money in, but because we're in, we've triggered a lot of interest from other places and other countries and other broadcasters. And so they became come a kind of they become a patchwork quilt of financing that can really 
really add up. And that helps everybody, you know, helps the filmmaker, helps us, helps our viewers. It's all about, you know, putting the best story out there that we can. Gotcha. How many pitches in a typical year would you take? Oh, well, it's, <laughs> I probably get about three or four a day. So um, it works out to, you know, about 500 a year. Oh, my God. 500 a year. And how many documentaries yeah. can you actually green light? Um, we green light usually at this point, we usually green light about 15 or 16 titles. Uh, that doesn't, but many, some of those titles are series. So there might be anywhere from three, six or 10 parts to um, a series. So in terms of um, hours, we're probably putting out about 40 to 45 hours of um, uh TV original content every year. Boy, so I, I i mean, I don't mean this to sound as bad as it will sound, but I'm guessing, Jane, you spend a heck of a lot of your life saying no to people. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's got to be a little soul-destroying <laughs> after a while, oh, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's totally soul-destroying. That's like sometimes when I look at my flagged emails and I think, oh my God, I have to say no to all these people. You know, it's just, it's heartbreaking because they put their heart and soul into these projects. Some of them are such personal projects, as many films are. And it's really hard to, you know, to be encouraging and yet um, indicate that we can't help them with that. Huh. It's so really hard. It is crushing. What are the qualities that, that, of a pitch that somebody needs to bring to you to get Jane Jankovic to say yes? Well, you know, I, I, I love a moving story and I love stories that have beginning, middles and ends whenever that's possible. But um, it has to be a contemporary story. We're not really interested in commissioning. Uh, history or science or nature or those kinds of projects it has to be a contemporary social issue story, ideally something that we can witness unfolding so that as we're watching the film, um, we don't know what really is going to happen next because it's a, it's, a, it's a moving story while we're watching it. Now, all our films are like that, but many of them are. It's sort of our sweet spot in terms of types of films that we like. And other times films are just, um, you know, kind of capsules of a time or a place or an event. Uh, and I like to think of them as historical documents in the making, you know. But I think it's really important to sort of document the times in which we live. Uh, from our perspective, I can I can buy all the history and science and nature and wildlife and biography and all that kind of stuff for, you know, substantially less than it would to commission them. So I'm most interested in documenting who we are right now in hopes that it might make some sense to somebody maybe 10 years down the road. <laughs> and does does some angle of the story have to be taking place inside the province of Ontario? Um, not necessarily, but it has to be strongly relevant to Ontario and Canada. Um, there definitely has to be some sort of visual content in there that's, that says that this is a story that also is uh, relevant and reflective of uh, Canada. There has to be that kind of part of it. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of the, I don't know, what, 2 or 3% of pitches that you've actually been able to say yes to. And then, okay. you know what, just uh, like take, take 30 seconds on each, each documentary that I mentioned here and just tell me whatever comes to mind. Um, okay. For example, broke. I run a legitimate business and I make money on them. Sure I do. Tell us about broke. Oh my God. I love broke. Broke was the very first film I ever commissioned. Um, it was with Rosie Dransfeld. Very, very simple, low budget idea. Uh, it's about, and it went on to win the Donald Britton award at the then Gemini. So at the time I'm thinking, well, this isn't so hard, you know, and then, <laughs> The next, then the next 145 or whatever came along. Okay, this takes a bit of work. Um, and, and it's a very simple idea. It's about a, um, a pawnbroker in a you know marginalized neighborhood in Edmonton. And Rosie set up the camera in the pawnbroker's shop. 
and just documented the people that came in and out of it. Um, and these are people who, she, it's like, she always said it was like the people's bank for this neighborhood. These aren't people who are ever going to get a loan or, you know, have a savings account or, you know, they, they can't go to the bank. So they use the pawnbroker and they'll come in and they'll like, they pawn their boots every month for like $20. Um, and then they come back when they have the money to buy their boots back at, you know, a hundred or 200%, uh, uh, increase, but nevertheless, I mean, there's one scene in there that really stuck out for me. The, the guy goes in there and he pawns his driver's license, mm. and the broker gives him 15 bucks for his driver's license. And at the time, I'm thinking, wow, this pawnbroker, that's so sweet of him. And what's he going to do with a driver's license if the guy doesn't come back? But then the guy comes back and he's charging him like 300%. So, you know, the pawnbroker mm. isn't doing it out of the goodness of his heart, right? I mean, mm -hmm. he's making these people he's making money off the people who don't have money to begin with so it's you're really quite torn what but what you think of this pawnbroker i hope i'm allowed to play favorites here because i am going to tell you now what my favorite one uh, during oh, your dude. tenure has been and this this documentary absolutely blows me away every time i watch it and i've seen it multiple times and i actually met the guy at the center of it all david and me my name is David McCallum. I've been incarcerated since I was 16 years old for a crime I didn't commit. Oh, yeah. What an amazing story about a guy who went to prison for almost 30 years for a crime he did not commit. And what That's a right. lovely man he has turned out to be, David. Absolutely. How did that come to you, that story? Uh, that story came to me by um, uh, Ray Klonsky and... Um, Mark Lammy and uh, Aaron Hancocks, and they, uh, Ray, had become pen pals to, uh, with, with David. And it, it, I commissioned it. I commissioned it because I thought this was a very moving and interesting story of a very unlikely relationship, how it came to be and, and, the, and uh, what these two people have meant to each other over the course of several years, how they've helped each other. Even the one is you know, nice middle-class guy in Toronto and the other guy is in prison since the age of 16 for a murder he did not commit. Um, and basically the story then turns into this last ditch attempt to try and find some speck of evidence that's going to allow David to have an appeal. Every appeal that, they, that David has tried has been rejected and they just thought, if we can just find one more thing. Now at this point, David's been in jail for like 29 years and they desperately through, you know, a private investigator and a lawyer and, you know, uh, who all worked pro bono and they're trying, 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 and we follow them as they try to make this happen. In the end, they don't, they don't get it. David goes in for his parole hearing. He refuses to say he's sorry for um, a crime he didn't commit and bingo, he's back in jail. And then, so that's the film. That's how the film ends actually originally when it was at hot docs, that's where it ended. Um, about five months later, I get a phone call or, or maybe it was an email. I get all my media mixed up these days. <laughs> but, um, and it's uh, one of the uh, producers, and he says, David's getting out tomorrow. I went, what? <laughs> it was unbelievable. Says, we're getting a camera. We're coming down. Mark's coming down from Montreal. Ray's already on his way. Or Ray actually was probably already there. Um, and I said, what happened? We don't know. This is the attorney general. Dave's, David's case was, there was a new attorney general. David's case was bumped to the top of the list of, of um, cases that were going to be reviewed um, for potential wrongful um, conviction. And uh, David didn't know what was happening. So we have the cameras there and everything. And David, you know, gets with his shackles and he goes to court thinking like, I don't know what this is about. And then he finds out for the first time that 
you know, <laughs> the attorney general has said, there's not enough evidence here. So this guy's exonerated, you're free to go. The DA's office was flooded with claims of wrongful conviction, just like ours. But then, in June of 2014, we got news that they were going to reinvestigate David's case. Four long months later, they called to tell us that on October 15th, David was going to get his day in court. It was unbelievable. You, you just ball your eyes out when you see that scene. Well, I'm getting weepy just now, just talking. It's incredible. <laughs> and, you know, to talk to yeah. David and, and see how, oh. how not embittered he was, no. how he emerges how as a as such a strong person. And you can imagine when he went away, I mean, he ne he'd never used a cell phone in his life. Think about the learning <laughs> curve for this poor fella as he comes out of jail. Absolutely. He goes in at 16, he comes out at 45. He doesn't <laughs> even know what Google is, you know, <laughs> yeah. if you can imagine. He says, what's this thing called the Google? <laughs> <laughs> it turned out that Murray's signed affidavit, along with Ruben's plea, had been enough to pique the interest of the DA and get David's case to the top of the list. Let me talk about one now that is 100 light years away from that story. And I'm just imagining how the pitch meeting went when the producers of a documentary that turned out to be Tripping the Rideau Canal <laughs> came to you and said, we want to do a documentary with no voiceover and it's going to be four hours long and we want you to play it not over four nights but all at once welcome to ontario's magnificent rideau canal this beautiful immersive documentary will take you along a 27 kilometer portion of this unesco world heritage site in real time how did that conversation go exactly well it actually didn't go like that oh. that is one yeah, it's it's one of the instances where um, Linda and I work with Linda Fong, and um, I had just read another yet another article about how this so-called slow TV movement is like sort of getting outrageous ratings in countries wherever they try it. And I had read that uh, started in Norway, I think, um, and uh, then I just read they did like an eight-hour version of a train going across the outback in Australia. It was the highest-rated program ever, hmm. and I thought, how does that happen? And then I just thought, you know, we could do that here. We've got beautiful places that people never go to and they maybe wonder about whether or not, um, or just what it's like. And so we were just talking and we then approached, of course, John Ferry, and he kind of went, oh, I'm not He's sure. He's our VP for Current Affairs and Docs. Yes, yes, sorry, thank, yeah. And he was, well, yeah, you know, maybe that could work, you know, and we've got trains here, we've got things. And, <laughs> and so that was a case where we then thought, who is a good team to go to in order for this to, to execute this? And we thought of um, of uh, this team at Good Earth Productions, and uh, <laughs> they're um, they were fantastic. They were perfect. You know, very view, uh, visual, um, have a very aesthetic aesthetic sensibility, and good storytelling. I mean, they were the ones that came up with all the factoids that that were there. They were the ones that did the animations and worked through that, and the VR three sixties and all that stuff. They put all of that together for us. But yeah, that's that's one of the sort of handful of cases where we came up with the idea and then looked for someone to execute it for us. But did nobody at any point say, um, guys, are we out of our minds? Is anybody actually going to watch four hours of this? And I have to tell you, I watched a lot of it. I didn't watch four hours of it, but I watched mm -hmm. a heck of a lot more of it than I thought I would because mm -hmm. it really pulls you in. It's absolutely riveting just to watch the boat yeah. going down the Rideau and all the stuff you learn along the way. Yeah, yeah. It's um it's mesmerizing. It's calming. Yeah. It's 
like, you know, and um, we had several people. I mean, it was a huge hit for us, too, both on on broadcast, but also online. And the numbers on air were were like blew us away. We were, we were pretty amazed by that. I think sometimes everybody needs to slow down a little bit Amen. or just, you know, just have an excuse to just be not be anywhere or do anything and and just be somewhere else, you know, just be somewhere else. Well, I remember I, I live tweeted for a while when I was watching it and I could mm-hmm. not get over how many, I mean, my, my Twitter feed started, you know, more and more responses yeah. of people saying, you know, are you guys watching this thing on TV? Oh, this is amazing. And anyway, it was, uh, it was a great, now I can't say that I ever cried when I was watching it, but I definitely mm-hmm. did cry when I watched Rescuing Rex. People think that I'm crazy. I mean, how do you live with 150 dogs? <laughs> My mission is to save them. Oh, did you? Oh. oh, are you kidding? Just before we go to Rescuing Rex, I just want to say that we are now working on another tripping, and it's going to be a bird's eye view of Niagara. Oh, outstanding. Okay. When's that one coming Stay out? Stay tuned for that. Uh, probably in the spring, spring 21. Excellent. Okay, look for that. Yeah, Rescuing Rex, which is all about, you know, these rescue dogs that, that people take in. How could yeah. you watch that and not ball your eyes out? I mean, that was I know. just lovely. I know. It really is. That was Leora, Leora Eisen that did that for us. And, you know, the, the whole phenomena of rescue dogs, it, it's very much a millennial phenomenon. So we that's where we kind of started about, like, why is everybody rescuing these dogs? And, of course, in, in some cases, it's almost a kind of competitive um um, a competitive sensibility about, well, where did your dog come from? Like, you know, like, like how developing world is your dog from? Because there's sort of a status attached to that in some way. Or what difficulties do your dog have? Or what was his, what's his backstory? You know, so there was, we kind of talked about it in a humorous way like that. But of course, when you start to look at um, the people who are motivated to save these dogs and the, um, the outpouring of people who want to save these dogs and take them on, um, it, yeah, it's, it makes you teary. It makes you teary for sure. I, I think as well. Now, hmm, I, either Le- now, this is probably the case. Leora probably can make a nickel go a long way because that documentary, I think, went to Texas, maybe Japan or yes. Korea or something. Yes, um, we, yes, it did. So yes, it did. That was an example of one there where the where the heart of the story is in the province of Ontario, but clearly yeah. it had relevance all around the world. Yeah, yeah, and then those are also like the kinds of stories I love too. That they're, they're universal in many ways, but the the micro story is here in Ontario. Now let's do one more documentary here. This is a um, well. This one was just out and out bizarre. You shone a light on forgeries in the art world with a documentary called "There Are No Fakes," <laughs> yeah. which which if you just listen to that title, because that's what somebody said. There are no fakes, and that gives you yeah. an indication of the the ethics that some of the people that you put a camera on. Uh, we're operating under. That's when I went into the gallery. <laughs> I bought my painting. Little did I know, the spider web was around me. What'd you like about that story? Yeah, what I love the most about that, well, first of all, it's a follow the money story. It is an unfolding story. You're not quite sure where you're going to end up at the end. And it, and, and for me, it's it falls into the category, like if it wasn't true, you'd never believe it. It's just so bizarre. Um, this is for people who haven't seen it. It's it's all online. Kevin Hearn of the Bare Naked Ladies. He buys a Norbel Morisot painting for $20,000. The AGO asks him to donate it for an exhibit that they're doing. He gets a call and says, um, Kevin, your painting's a fake. And uh, so then Jamie Kastner, the filmmaker, basically follows the money. He goes from 
you know, a swishy gallery in New York and ends up at an art fraud ring headed by an alleged murderer in a little town where he's keeping these artists all pumped up on drugs. You can't make this up. I know you can't. <laughs> they pump out these fake Morisos and then this really sleazy Toronto network, you know, sells them for relative pennies at auctions. And, and, uh, it, <laughs> and it, it creates... People were so angry, you know, at the investigation of these Morisos, because you can imagine people who bought Morisos thinking that they're real. And now there's probably thousands out there that are questionable. Um, so there wasn't a lot of um, support to sort of uh, finding the more the, the painting of fake. Um, but it certainly was a great story. Kevin lost the case in the film because it goes to court. He loses the case in the film, but then there is uh, an appeal and he won. So... Hmm. Yeah, yeah, but there's lots of Morisos you know, hanging around, like literally hanging around. <laughs> right. You have no idea if they're real or not. Only an expert would know. Yeah. Now, you alluded to this earlier that you not only commission sort of one-off 60, 90-minute long documentaries, but you do documentary series as well. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to express um, a little partiality here. Uh, you do something called Political Blind Date, where they put two politicians from two different parties uh, together— who have, you know, at first blush, nothing at all in common. And mm-hmm. and then, you know, they go on a political blind date. One takes the other to his mm-hmm. or her neck of the woods and vice versa. And they sort of see aspects of the other person's life and community that, uh, that they probably didn't know much uh, beforehand. And yeah. I, I guess the question I have for you on this is, we live in an age that is so tribal, where you're never supposed to give your opponent, you know, an inch you're never supposed to acknowledge that they have anything, you know, good to say about anything. And yet this is a show that basically takes two people who are polar opposites together. And by the end of the show, they actually come to see one another's point of view. Yeah. So why do politicians actually agree to come on a show like that that could get them in trouble with their own parties? Well, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. Well, yeah, I think largely, I think because it humanizes uh, the politician. Um, and I think that... Um, it's a way of talking about the issue uh, that isn't antagonistic necessarily, although it does get a little feisty, you know, depending on the issue and depending on the, on the politicians. But I think it does uh, indicate that, you know, politicians are people too. They're not just necessarily pawns of their parties. And, uh, and, and it also gives you a sensibility about how, how that politician um, relates to his or her constituency. And, uh, yeah, and I think especially when there's absolutely nothing in common with them or they feel very strongly opposed. Like, so for instance, we just did, I just watched one recently, um, a fine cut, Elizabeth May and Kathy McLeod, who's an MP from Kamloops on pipelines. Um, they have nothing in common in terms mm-hmm. of issue, but they have a lot in common in terms of other parts of their life. And they, you know, agree to disagree and, um, you know, have respect for each other's point of view, but they're not going to stop fighting for the, the perspective that they take on. And that's what that's what politics is, I guess. I mean, that's what Parliament should be. It, it, it has de- it has devolved into something uglier than that. But um, you know, I think that it's more. It's as I said, I think it shows the humanity behind politics. Well, my favorite episode, and, and I, admittedly, we're going back two or three seasons right now, was Doug Ford, not yeah. yet the Premier of Ontario, and yeah. Jugmeet Singh, not yet yeah. the NDP leader. Yeah. And Doug Ford bringing Jugmeet Singh to one of his hangouts in Etobicoke. Yes. And mm-hmm. and Jugmeet Singh meeting Doug Ford at Queen's Park and getting the, can I say this? Getting the 300 plus pound Mr. Ford onto a bicycle and getting him cycling 
you know, of course, because Jugmeet Singh is all excited about, you know, new bike paths and so on in downtown Toronto. Jugmeet brought me down here and I got a call saying, get a bicycle helmet. I thought, boy, I haven't been on a bicycle in 30 some odd years and getting strapped up, get the helmet on and away we went. Honestly, I haven't been on a bike in 35 years. No way. 35 years. That's what he said. He hadn't touched a bike in over three decades. And I'll tell you, by the end of the episode, those two guys understood each other and, yeah. and their issues a lot better. It really worked very well. Yeah, it did. I love that scene on the bicycle, too, you know, because you can tell like, Doug is having a hard time on there. It's well, he said, I haven't been on a bike in 35 years. Let's see how this is going to go. Yeah. And then, as you say, we go to Doug's, um, you know, riding and like he's like King of Kensington. Oh, there. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think that was an eye opener for, for Jagmeet as well. Like, wow, this guy is, you know, people who don't follow his worldview or his political stripe. Um, it does tell you this is a people person, you know, and so that's he works in his constituency. Uh, so it's an interesting, uh, you know, perspective. Again, it sort of looks at the people behind the position and behind the issue mm-hmm. um, to the issue itself. Let's do one more thing here, JJ, and that is um, you are responsible not just for putting uh, documentaries on the air that we have a hand in making, but you acquire them from others as well. And right. maybe, why don't you start by telling us, um, why would you want to acquire for, for broadcast on TVO documentaries that you didn't have a hand in producing or commissioning or anything like that? You're just, you're just buying them. Why do you do that? Well, we do that because it allows us to give a, a broader experience of this type of storytelling from different parts of the world that we would never be able to afford to commission ourselves. Um, so we look for projects that are um, exclusive to us in Ontario. And um, so you're not likely to see them on any other broadcaster, although there are a few few exceptions here and there. Um, And it allows us to bring in like fantastic storytelling from some of the best storytellers in the world, whether it's through, um, you know, BBC or various, or Arte France, Germany, et cetera, uh, Australia, some American um, projects. Um, We wouldn't be able to do that if we had to physically make every single film or commission every single film or be in a partnership with every single film because it takes like 18 months to two two and a half years from the time that you commission a film to the time it's actually ready to go on air um, it takes a long time and you can't like wait for it and run nothing in between so um, it's our way of just like expanding that that view that screen we bring the world to your living room and and we can do it with really beautiful blue chip high quality or very provocative films or um, films that bring you perspectives uh, that we wouldn't have access to doing here. So um, yeah, that's why we do it. And um, it's not an uncommon practice. There's a lot of broadcasters that, that do acquire you know, a bulk of their, well, I think everyone actually probably acquires a good uh, amount of um, content for their channels. Um, but it definitely allows us to sort of bring the world to Ontario. I watched the first episode, I guess about a week ago, of Once Upon a Time in Iraq. That is just absolutely, like, it's just so gripping. And oh, absolutely. And, and, and another one, actually, that uh, I think the weekend we did the telethon, I watched, um, I watched the first episode of this one as well called The Palace and the Press, yeah, all about yeah. uh, Princess Diana's relationship with the British media. And, and oh, yeah. you know, oh, my goodness. I know. Um, some, in, uh, you know, very powerful scenes in that one, too. What, what, what did you like about those two that you wanted to get them for TVO? Well, this is where I thankfully have um, 
I have um, um, acquisition uh, people who actually scour catalogs and you know screen tons and tons and tons of films and series and try to pick out the best stuff um, for that that would be work for us on TVO. And also, what we're always keen to look at is you know tell stories from perspectives that are not common. Um, so, for instance, I think that's where Once Upon a Time in Iraq uh, really shines. Um, you know, it's 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 um it's perspectives of mostly Iraqi civilians. Um, that talk about what it was like to experience the post 9-11 invasion into, invasion into Iraq. Um, it's not a film about war, but it is. Um, it's very revealing in ways that you couldn't imagine, and particularly with the kind of, um, perhaps, the, the way we, we envision Iraq and Iraqi culture, mm. uh, people growing up in Iraq, um, yeah, the humanity just leaps out humanity, at the screen. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, like that one character um, who wanted to be American, right? That guy, he, mm-hmm. he as a band, he wanted to. He was a rock music guy, and he's all I ever wanted to do was be an American. Uh, he's Iraqi, and uh, and even when the he heard, even with the invasion, he thought, oh wow, maybe maybe we'll be like the U.S. now. Like he's so into it, and then it all kind of, you know, fell apart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or even that that soldier that's in there. At first you think, oh, my God, what an ugly American that guy is. I can't believe it. And then you just realize, like, he's he's just so messed up from what he did when yeah. he was a soldier in Iraq. And so it's, it's very intimate. It's very revealing. Um, it's not hard to watch, but it is very moving. Well, I tell you, I didn't want to watch it because I'm probably like many people who yes, think, you know, I've, I, know. I just... I've had enough of bad news from that part of the world, yep. but I did start to watch it and it just drew yep. me in and I couldn't leave it. Yeah. 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 It has a bit of a slow start, but then once you get, once you realize what it is that you're, um, uh, you're experiencing here, what you're observing, it's like, you just, you can't stop watching it. The press, you know, media and the Royals, like we liked about that. There's tons of stuff about the Royals. We could run tons and tons of stuff about the <laughs> What was really great about this one is it was about the media and the Royals and, uh, it's like, you know, who is using who for what and when? <laughs> That's a good way to put it, because it was a very symbiotic relationship, wasn't it? Absolutely. They need each other to survive. Mm-hmm. And that's where this series, I think, makes uh, strikes it a little bit different um, than other um, stories about royals and the, the paparazzi. Yeah, she may have been coy, Princess Diana I'm talking about, in the way that she attracted the media attention. But they were a bunch of piranhas. I mean, oh, oh my absolutely. goodness. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's Jane Jankovic, who's the commissioning editor of Documentaries for TVO. JJ, thanks again for spending so much time with us. This was great fun. Oh, it's great, Steve. Always great to talk with you. And that's it for us. This episode of TVO at 50 was produced by Katie O'Connor and Matthew O'Mara. Editing by Donnie Swanson. Research help from Kate Petch and Carol Elder. Our production support coordinators are Jonathan Hallowell and Nikki Ashworth. We want you to share your TVO memories. What does TVO mean to you? Well, record yourself and email the audio to us using the address tvo at 50 at tvo.org. That's TVO, A-T, and the number is 50 at tvo.org. And we'll play these on future episodes. Next time on the podcast... I used to get, you know, I got very accustomed to seeing you pretty much every day of my working life for 28 years. And now here we are. It's like six, seven months later. I haven't seen you once in all that time. It's just not right, Diane. But you didn't speak to me, though. It was like being married because you just used to have your head in your research. And I knew not to distract you. 
there are some days I think to myself, he doesn't need this. I mean, he could retire and be leading a much more peaceful existence. Why do you still do it? Because I, I like, I like uh, uh, the broadcasting part of it, you know. I like the breadth of it. I like the idea of what we do being watched by many people. I'm Steve Pakin. Bye-bye. <laughs>